When we finally arrived at the undersea city, we were greeted by Aquaman and his companion Aqualad. But something was amiss. Aqualad's demeanor signaled that there was more than met the eye with the King of the Sea, and we soon found out how right we were when the imposter revealed himself. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. Aquaman. Um, I was actually watching an episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold before we started recording, which had both Aquaman and Adam Strange in it. <laughs> and they went to Ranagar, and Alana was there, and the giant magnifying glass that shot oh, laser yeah. beams from the sun was on it. Uh, it was pretty great. Uh, I was a big fan. I was like, I know all of these things. They had the Sea of Abix. I guess that's how it's pronounced. Um, they pronounce it Ron. Hmm. I think that's wrong for the record. I think it's wrong. <laughs> it may not be right. Because they say Ranagar and the city of Ron and the planet of Ron. And I'm like, mm, should should be the same. Spelled that. Yeah. I won't get into to linguistics and etymology before of, a, of a, an alien planet. But, I mean, we could because we're that pedantic. Um, <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> speaking of Aquaman, though, that's going to be our, our focus for today. We're going to go around to a lot of different books. However, we're going to go into the last issue of Detective Comics that Aquaman appears in. Um, and then we're going to jump between Aquaman's solo title, which started the last time we did coverage for Aquaman, and then World's Finest, which is the second book that he's also appearing in. Um, these are either written by um, the guy who's writing Martian Manhunter at the time, or in my book, credited with an unknown author. I'm going to assume it's also him as well, because why would it not be? But we haven't seen a precedent of other people. Uh, I mean, Robert Bernstein was writing for a while in the initial uh, Adventure Comics run. And then Jack Miller took over, which is the guy who's also writing um, Martian Manhunter at this time. And I'm assuming anything that's unknown after Jack Miller started writing, which was pretty consistently, is just going to be Jack Miller. Unless Robert Bernstein didn't want to be credited. Um, just we're going to start right off because we've got a lot of content to cover. Because this is all of 1962 and then we're going to go straight uh, we're going to finish this episode with 1962, and then we're going to go from 63 to 64 in the next episode to catch him up with everybody else. Um, Joanne? Okay. Detective Comics, number 300, February 1962. Uh, criminals fool Aquaman and Aqualad into thinking that they're on a search and rescue mission for an explorer who is lost in this undersea safari maze question mark situation and uh aquaman and aqualad lead them through it only to find out that the guys who were on the quote-unquote search and rescue team were actually criminals who were trying to steal from the adventurer and then aquaman aqualad and the adventurer team up against the criminals and stop them um that is the last issue of detective comics in the silver age that aquaman appears in as far as we know i don't know if he's ever appeared in detective comics ever again um as the current run stands i would um, suspect not uh because they tend to do that. I think they consolidate down to just the two stories. It's so uh, Batman and then uh, Martian Manhunter. And then we're about to start really getting uh, Batman fever. So I would suspect that it stays in Batman focus, I guess. I would guess we get more Batman instead of more Aquaman. I would assume so as well. Um However, there's been a thousand issues of Detective Comics, and I'm not True. I'm not one to to shy away from a challenge. But I'm not going through all those comics. Uh, yep. <laughs> is it literally, this entire it podcast itself is. Yeah, we do, we just had its thousandth issue, I think, recently. Um, wow. Yeah, well, think of it this way, man. Detective Comics number three hundred was 1962. Yeah, that was f almost seventy years ago. I just didn't realize that it was continuous numbering. Oh, yeah. The about that. Detective and Action are the only ones I think that they have contiguous numbering for. That and Sensation, which they occasionally bring back when they're bored. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, like, I can't even think of what Sensation would be at this point. Wonder Woman. Yeah, fair. For the Trinity. So they have uh, Action as Superman, Sensation as Wonder Woman, and, and Detective as Batman, which is smart. And I would love if they did more Trinity books like that that were just one-offs, but... You know, DC hasn't returned any of my emails. Uh, we're going to move to Aquaman number two, March, April, 1962. A pirate sends Aquaman and Aqualad on a treasure hunt uh, while he keeps a cargo ship's crew hostage. 
it really ends up going nowhere after all these 24 pages is that they end up just destroying the treasures to to make the guy really pissed off after they save the hostages it's kind of a circular story in that in in that fashion um, nothing in it happens that's important uh, World's Finest, number 125, May 1962. This is the first issue of World's Finest that Aquaman has appeared in since he stopped appearing in Detective Comics. Aqualad gets super strength from mysterious underwater gas, and he gets it for 12 hours, and they use that to scare away some criminals who are looking to lean on him because he's going to be a surprise witness or a star witness for a defense case, and uh, having the super strength makes the thieves freak out and scared of him. And so he's fine. Aquaman number three, May, June, 1962, an Atlantean named Pock, I'm sorry, it's Roman, it's a Roman name, Pamoxis, an Atlantean named Pamoxis, very, very imperial Roman name, very Latin, um, impersonates Aquaman after trying to kill him with a trap underwater, which ends up being a time vortex that puts Aquaman into ancient Greece in a very Thermopylae sort of a situation, but don't worry, it's not really Thermopylae because they've got Poseidon on their shields and not the shield of Sparta. Um, for those of you who aren't really up to date on your you know, military history, Thermopylae is the 300 of the movie 300 except not by Frank Miller because he's gross. Um, and all this time, Aquaman has to find a way to get back to his time period. Meanwhile, Aqua Lad is dealing with the imposter Aquaman, who is in a very uh, Buffalo Bill from the Silence of the Lambs skin suit of Aquaman that I found very distressing and I was not a fan of. Uh, yeah, that description alone is just like, oh, it got worse than just seeing a husk of Aquaman and that he steps into and you're like, hmm. This could be nightmarish for a child. <laughs> I'm glad that we both used the term skin suit in our notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's weird and gross and I don't like it. But uh, Aquaman coming back from ancient Greece finds Pamoxis fighting with Aqualad and they stop him, of course, because otherwise the comic would not continue. World's Finest number 126, June 1962. Topo nearly ruins an aquatic circus because he, I don't know, is a glory hog. This is a weird story. This is the most out-of-character Topo story I've ever seen. And it's very bothersome to me because Topo usually is like the animal familiar of Aquaman who never fucks up. Like, if you watch Critical Role at all, he's the trinket of, of the, you know, Aquaman family. He just, he's always there. He rarely fucks up. He usually does something really great. Not often, but when he does something, he usually does something awesome. And for Topo to be weirdly sort of characterized as this character who is just constantly messing things up for no reason, I don't know what the point of that is. I don't know when we decided that Topo is like a glory hog, but I don't like it because Topo is the best octopus. He's the best he's the best cephalopod and he never screws up. So this is this is not cool. This is character assassination. So to chime in a little bit on that one, I think I, I think this is partly just what DC does with pet sidekicks at this point, because I have vivid memories of reading a Superboy comic or a Superman comic with Crypto having basically the same situation of being over overly interventionist trying to be the glory hog and things going wrong and then needing to save the day at the end i you're not wrong yeah and the same way that there are generic uh kid sidekick stories that uh we see even when they don't quite fit the character we're gonna get the i guess this is just the generic pet story you know what it reminds me of is streaky and crypto fighting yep from Supergirl. So yeah, you're absolutely right. This is par for the course. I just don't like what they're doing to Topo. Topo cannot be touched. How dare they? You can do I whatever you want to streaky and crypto. Topo story though. Yeah, he he deserves his his day in the uh, Aqua Limelight. Uh, Aquaman number four, July August 1962. Remember Quisp from the last episode of Aquaman that we did? Uh, he was that water sprite. Uh, Quisp returns to help Aquaman and Aqualad save some towns from aliens who took control of a peaceful spacecraft that has landed on Earth and are planning to use the weapons on that peaceful spacecraft on the population of Earth. Um, there's a weird sort of like fake Quisp death 
in this where Quisp gets hit by a beam and they're like, oh my God, Quisp gave his life for us. And then they're like, nah, the beam is just like a teleporter ray. He's fine. Um, so Quisp, who looks kind of like Jack Frost from the old claymation Christmas movies. If y'all are familiar with those, like the old claymation, like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and mm-hmm. Frosty the Snowman movies that were like stop motion. I guess stop motion is the, right, the real term. But he looks like kind of like Jack Frost. <laughs> I can't get it out of my head. Um, huh. But he's just in there doing Quisp stuff. It's not, it's Quisp's powers are very nebulous and it bothers me because he seems to have more power over the water and the ocean than Aquaman does. Aquaman seems to have power over the ocean life as the ruler of the denizens of the deep. Quisp can make fucking tidal waves go away because he can. And I'm like, that's a lot of power. (laughs) Quisp is basically the Green Lantern. Yeah, he's he's non-mischievous. Well, no, he's kind of mischievous, but like chaotic good Mr. Mixius Pitalik, but water-based. I'd even go like neutral good. Yeah, yeah, he's more neutral good. Yeah, he he doesn't really play favorites, and he does kind of have his fun with people, but he genuinely just goes out of his way to just be a good dude. None of his jokes are ill ill mannered or ill tempered. They're just like oh okay, kind of a thing. It's like, he 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 somewhat pokes at people, but he doesn't fuck with people. Yeah, he he plays with them. He doesn't he laughs with them, not at them. Yeah, that's a better way to put it distinctions are important uh we then go to world's finest number 127 august 1962 uh aquaman trains a bunch of his fish to catch a specific crook who is on the high seas um while the specific crook watches the specific tactics being performed and he's like guess what guys i now know how we can counter all of aquaman's new fish pals who are trained to fight us and they're like great boss and so they make all these countermeasures for the fish but then surprise a second battalion of fish who've been completely trained in secret and it was just a weird excuse to have commando fish for aquaman it look they're normal fish that he's just using in incredibly detailed and intricate ways there's a lasso made out of eels and i have in my notes that it reminds me big fan it it first off it because of the way it's drawn it's multiple eels like knotting themselves together uh to form like the body of the lasso and then the the uh the hoop at the end and i just have written down flesh lasso Mm. it looks like something out of parasite yeah, now I think about it, it's not a good, a lot of a lot of questionable flesh use <laughs> in the soccer man. Questionable flesh <laughs> use is my post rock band. Oh, it's the title of this episode. If anything, um, ooh, bingo. Yeah, uh, there's a lot. There's a lot happening here. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about that as well because it's there's a problem between the world's finest issues and the aquaman issues um world's finest number 128 september 1962 there's a fake trial to convince aquaman or rather to convict aquaman who is pretending to have amnesia um and help crooks out uh so essentially he's been helping crooks out they get they catch him they convict him so that the crooks try and break him out and bring him back to their hideout which is all just a sting um, it's the last half of every Superman has amnesia. Let's convince him to do crime story. Yep. Like we skipped the whole bit where he gets amnesia. <laughs> it was like, it's like half a comic. I don't know why we did this. Uh, Aquaman number five, September, October, 1962. An evil wizard fools Aquaman and Aqualad into helping him and his followers escape their undersea prison that they've been shrunk into. And upon finding out that he's an evil wizard and they have to combat him and his lightning rod, which I guess is just a a stun gun stick. It's very strange. Uh, it also, like, takes control of certain... It's, eh, a lot of questionable magic use as well, as well. In this, it's not a lot of define The rules of Aquaman, in terms of magic between Quisp and this sorcerer, are pretty pretty ambiguous i'd like to say this is like first edition D here it's like eh, God, it's just whatever you want we don't have rules and then it's like second edition is like okay but like maybe not up to a thousand feet <laughs> and eventually they're like 
diluting it down so it's very restrictive but here it's like anybody can just do whatever the hell they want um so Aquaman and Aqualad find out that he's a trickster, bad guy, dude, and then they shrink him back again. And there's a line here that I specifically did not enjoy that said that they would live till their old age and die in their imprisonment. Did Aquaman and Aqualad just banish a bunch of men to their death? Yep. So I counted that as a body count. That's six people. That's the wizard and his followers. Uh, they just killed six people by putting them in a prison that they can't get out of. That's horrifying. It's it's <laughs> that's a worse rough. than the look. That's worse than the Phantom Zone, in which is a dimension in which you cannot die. It is canonical fact that the Phantom Zone you exist as pure energy or a spirit matter, and you are in you're you're unable to die because you don't technically exist in the physical world. Um, the science cells in Oa are a prison. Presumably, you also die in the science cells of Oa, but you're taken care of. Because there's Green Lanterns watching you. So you're probably fed. These guys have been shrunk down into a prison where they have like no one taking care of them. Nobody knows that they exist. They have to. F- it's like being left on a deserted island and just being like, well, I hope you survive as long as you can, Tom Hanks and Castaway. Um, I just on a roll tonight with those. World's Finest, number 129, <laughs> November 1962. Alien fish cause havoc on Earth, and Aquaman and Aqualad have to help capture them and return them to their rightful wranglers. Doesn't really go very well. Um, Aquaman number six, this is the last issue that we're going to cover. November, December, 1962. Quisp's brother, Quink, I'm not making any of this up, is helping a known criminal fight Aquaman and Aqualad, and Quisp comes to Aquaman and Aqualad's aid to stop Quink because Quink has been bamboozled by this criminal into thinking that Aquaman and Aqualad are criminals and not the criminal. Now, Quink was in our world finding bad guys because another water sprite, Quirp, can't tell you how stupid I find this naming convention. <laughs> Quirp is a criminal water sprite? What laws and rules he has broken, we are not told. He's just the bad one. And might might I add, not related to Quisp or Quink, but has a similar start to his name. We're not going to talk about that. There's no reason to. I just felt it had to be brought up. But Quirp and the bad guy have the ability to kind of stop everybody because they can kind of rob them of their powers for a little bit. Roundabout solution here. It's figured out. They defeat Quirp and the no need to name pirate. And Quisp and Quink take Quirp back where they live. <laughs> and that is the dumbest sentence I think I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and i hate it i hate it so much um i have literally here underlined too many sprites because once once we find out that quink is duped he disappears again to be like like because quisp is like hey go back home and stop doing this like quisp is like a cop i guess like he has some sort of huh. authority like he's just like a water sprite like why is quink tracking down Quirp. It's never explained like what their reason for trying to catch this guy is other than like he's a bad dude and I want to are they a posse? Do they work for the Sprite Police Department? What is what is happening here? Is there a hierarchy we're unfamiliar with? Are they just like trying to conduct a citizen's arrest? I have questions and I also hate the question start with QU because there's too many QU words. And I hate it. And it makes me long for the days of Doiby Dickles. Yeah. It just... It's really good that our coverage ends there. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to talk about a couple things here. The cognitive dissonance between the world's finest issues and the Aquaman issues. The stakes are markedly lower in all the world's finest issues. 
So much so that it is very obvious that these are the beginnings of Camp Aquaman. And I don't mean like a summer camp that Aquaman is the theme of. Um, Please? I would go there. I would as well. Um, DC, return my emails. Um, it's more the idea that Aquaman has become campy. And I say that specifically in looking at the topo, the glory hog issue. That whole issue is very laugh track and it doesn't fit with the high stakes like world ending things or like hunting down criminals that all the Aquaman issues have. So it's like, it's very weird that his solo title book seems to be focused on fate of the seven seas types of problems or you know fighting the the wizard who was an actual criminal or quisp quirk and quink um or or the hostages of the cargo ship kind of a thing like there's there's some like real stakes for the aquaman issues but the world's finest issues are seven pages of let's get this in fast and I don't know if it's because also in World's Finest, you have the World's Finest stories, which is, you know, Superman, Batman, and Robin. And clearly, you're going to want to put those as your flagship people. But why put Aquaman in that book in the first place? He was perfectly fine, a detective. It's shit, he was fine at adventure. But we're going to take him out of those, we're going to take him out of those two books. He's been moved three times in his titles. Not only that, but he's also appearing in his own solo book. He's the only person who appears in a solo book and an uh, amalgam or collection book outside of the Trinity. And I think even at this point, Wonder Woman's not even appearing in Sensation Comics anymore because I don't think Sensation's running. Um, I'd have to check my notes. But both Batman and Superman are appearing in Detective and their own solo titles. Green Lantern is not appearing in you know uh showcase presents anymore as he never started out in like mystery in space or something even though he very well could be in mystery in space um the flash is also not in mystery in space he's just in flash comics which is using the contiguous numbering from the golden age so it's very interesting to me that they're like aquaman has to keep showing up somewhere other than his own book i don't know if it's because they're trying to sell him or something but they're really pushing him hard enough to give him two places to be when more successful, more compelling characters, better written characters are only in their own solo titles. So I don't know that this is what's going on, uh, but I think there's a difference in who the editor is between at least some of the Aquaman's uh, issues and the World's Finest issues. Because World's Finest is... Uh, generally, but not exclusively, under the header of uh, Jack Schiff, whereas uh, it's not entirely clear who's the executive editor for uh, the Aquaman stories, but it looks like starting around uh, issue five, it's George Cashdan, and I've seen that name around, but I don't remember what yeah. else he's done. So I think there's a broader thing going on about tone and editorial fiefdoms and a lot of this is going to be conjecture i can just go by what i'm seeing in the issues themselves i would love to read expose is a strong word but like a behind the scenes what what it was like in the dc bullpen especially with regards to the editors because we know that the editors were powerful uh especially the editors who like the executive editors who ran multiple books uh julius schwartz is the example we keep coming back to he's the one yeah. who relaunched who was given the mandate of relaunched silver age heroes and he relaunched flash he relaunched uh green lantern uh and pretty soon he's going to be the driving force on batman if memory serves when they have the new look in i think two years i think 1964 before the 1966 show starts but in terms of what exactly that means, it's a little bit less clear, but it does seem like there are just certain tones of stories, of issues that are more associated with some editors than others. Like specifically, 
one thing that I noticed is that none of the Julius Schwartz comics that we've read that I was able to see like the advertisements and other like one page gags for had one page gags. Like we've talked about the PSAs uh, and little informational like one page things where it's like, oh, flash fact kind of things uh, that show up in Julius Schwartz comics. There aren't any of the Archie style uh, one page just goofs that a lot of other comics have. Uh, whereas I go through like every Mort Weisinger or Jack Schiff comic that I look through, it's got some of that. Uh, World's Finest absolutely has some goofy stuff in it. Uh, and for context, like Adventure was Mort Weisinger. Uh, same with Action. And Schiff had Batman and Detective Comics. Like, it's not just that we as modern day readers find these Batman and Superman stories to be weirdly gimmicky and funny and dead chuffed kind of situations. They're also framing them more in that kind of gaggish way because the filler of the comic is that kind of thing instead of the relative seriousness of UN PSAs uh, or science facts or did you know situations. Uh, So all of this is a long-winded way of saying that one of the reasons that there's the difference between Aquaman comics and the world's finest issues might be that it shifted be they're in under different editorial fiats i don't know uh but i would be fascinated to know more about what exactly people had a say in yeah it's very interesting how little i mean if you got books and books about some of the stuff um and some documentaries but i would love to see more in depth really like probing work on figuring out what the hell happened and what was going on. And I don't know if we can't do that because some of those people are dead now. (laughs) And a lot of those secrets got taken to the grave, but surely somebody knows surely some, like someone around was around in the sixties, like, and knew. And these were people who were like, especially the people who are creating stuff at this point were being lionized. Not too much later. Like, within like certainly stanley it part of that generation and a little bit earlier and we lost stan but i mean stan was being lionized 20 years ago when he could still give a good interview like other people must have been in the exact same boat oh sure i want (laughs) to i gotta give a little context on this one because it's entertaining uh One of the things that I do like to do occasionally is call out, at this point in time, what's going on in the other stories in these issues. And Detective number 300 is a... The Batman story is about a... Supervillain is maybe a strong word, but a crook who has a polka dot costume, and when he grabs one of the dots from it and throws it, it has a power of some kind. It turns into a giant ball of fire. It turns into a flying saucer. It's it's a cloak of stars from D&D, except instead of being magic missile, it's a fire thing. That's, that's polka dot man, right? Yep. I love it. I... So happy I knew exactly what you were talking about without even without even seeing it. That was impressive. <laughs> I am not going to lie. <laughs> uh, we're we are definitely plumbing the characters who are going to be pulled back by like the 30, 40 years later uh, writers who grew up on this stuff and are like, dude, I could do something with that Silver Age character. Uh, we'll also see. Uh, I have written down a bit of trivia. In 1999, I think this is Grant Morrison who did this. There was a character, uh, a sprite named Quisp, Q-W-S-P, who started a war between, like kind of mischievously started a war between two other sprites, one of whom was Johnny Thunder's lightning bolt. (laughs) 
which is a very like silver age callback kind of sentence yeah. to say. But yeah, we are definitely in full like science goofball Batman era right now. We haven't quite gotten the camp side of it, or rather we haven't gotten the camp independent of the sci-fi. One thing we've we've talked before about this aspect of Aquaman, so I'm just going to recall it out and then expand on it a little bit. We came to the decision that one of the reasons we really like Aquaman stuff is that even though the stories aren't necessarily structured any better than, say, Martian Manhunter, uh, the the problem, the solutions that are come up with for uh, Aquaman to enact aren't that much more creative or interesting in theory than Martian Manhunter stuff. The fact that it's sea animals is just so much cooler. Uh, partly yep. because it's more grounded, but partly also just animals are cooler than random bullshit. But it's made me realize that I've got like some conditioning going. Like I've, I kind of, I called it like faith momentum that as long as no stories are actively letting me down badly, uh, I just, I'm more, I'm so much more willing to forgive the the faults and not, dig into it it's i know i'm having i know i'm i have had fun in the past i am more willing to have fun in the present uh and none of these stories really break that for me so i'm looking forward to more aquaman yeah i mean i honestly do do agree here that i think the biggest thing we've been seeing with aquaman stories is while they're not exemplary they're not terrible yep (laughs) And they don't let us down in anything other than being exactly what we expect them to be, which is whatever it is. That might also have to do with the fact that we have no real expectation for what Aquaman comics are, aside from the contemporary version of Aquaman, because neither of us really read Aquaman that much. So I think the difference between this, and again, we keep making that comparison, Martian Manhunter, is that we're disappointed this is what they're doing with Martian Manhunter with such a cool character, is that, versus oh look the beginnings of aquaman so now we're probably we're gonna get a little more down to uh tactical notes but there's a lot of little joys that i'm gonna be calling out so hopefully this brings a smile to some of you guys so there's a bit where aqualad is demonstrating that he has superpowers or at least pretending it and the way he does this is by punching a berserk giant shark that is uh charging at some dudes and it and the shark is pretending to be uh berserk but first off the shark definitely needs an oscar but also there's a point where like the shark gets punched and it like rears back as though it's been hit that but like rears out of the water like it's like you know how uh whales look like when they breach and they're like part way out of the yeah. water and then they fall down it's like the amount of abdominal muscles that must be abdominal and back muscles required to like arch like that out of the water that shark must be ripped yeah it was the shark does at least a daytime emmy (laughs) that is a hell of a consolation prize but you're right yeah yeah it's a shark i mean you don't want to give it i mean it's gonna be competing next to some real actors out there let's let's at least acknowledge it maybe a golden globe at best (laughs) i i'm just gonna read the bits that i have capitalized for this uh about the uh topo story in world's finest uh god yes topo story i fucking love this octopus uh put topo and smash you cowards yep and you know what part of it is of why Topo works and especially why I I was okay with it in this story. It was at least and at least from an entertainment point of view, this story was enjoyable for me. Partly because Topo is silent. Like Crypto and Streaky the Supercat, they're usually like thought narrating everything that happens, whereas Topo is being just a cartoonish silent octopus and the comic really lets his reactions and his animated features sell it. Eel lasso, that is extremely creepy and amazing. It's like a flesh lasso. There was a lot of caps involved in my notes for this particular uh, episode. There's also just some moments of... 
I can't call it bad writing, but I don't understand who would ever write the phrase shiver my timbers. I mean, technically that's grammatically correct. <laughs> yeah, but I cannot imagine any like there's a point at which the colloquial becomes the canonical. Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely right. It's also speaking of canons and uh, canons and fanons. Uh, we have mention of a planet Vulcan, and I just want to reiterate for our readers, we are still four years before Star Trek comes out. So yep. I kind of wonder, like, if there's a if there's a shared origin beyond like the mythical one uh, for Vulcan being a planet name, like did it just for whatever reason did that get was that the name of a planet in some other sci-fi thing and then everybody kind of used it the way like alpha centauri was or is it just that that was a name that made sense with the naming structure that we have for our planets uh being i mean in our case roman gods um i don't know but it's interesting yeah i was annoyed by the use of it was all a dream in these issues i think we had two separate instances or wait no i think that's because i went one issue too far in world's finest uh there is a story that is almost entirely it was all a dream and it sucks there wasn't a dream in this one was there the kind of so the one with the uh the genie uh where there's that like two or three pages of the the seahorse flying wingling dragon seahorse hippogriff yes uh, the captain Ooh, who gets aquaman and aqualad to uh get the treasures from the ocean so that he can release the hostages that he has is for a genie that resides within an empty seashell um yeah and there is definitely a bit there where he like imagines what he will do with the genie so it's, you're seeing a bunch of destruction and it like isn't really happening though it's the batman versus superman thing yeah uh but i do Honestly, that's the thing. That, one of the things that makes me sad is the seahorse wingling dragon is so cool. It just it looks exactly what we described, <laughs> but yeah, it's just a dream, and it's unclear whether that's what it would actually look like if it came out of the uh, the chest that it's in. Uh, and that's actually like part of a broader thing. I was thinking about it and there are a lot of like giant monsters and cool sea monsters throughout here. Some of them alien, some of them magical. There was never an instance where I saw one of those like giant monsters and I thought that's bullshit. They were always sufficiently cool to be like, yeah, no, I'm on board with this. They all belonged within the Aquaman universe. Yes. Cause some of them were like sci-fi and interesting or like mashups of things like this dragon. But there were also, there was also one that was just like, it's basically a giant lobster. Yeah. All right. I'm on board. That's <laughs> funny. Quisp. So I, I called out earlier that like power wise, he's very green lantern. And one of the issues with that semi sabotages my enjoyment of Quisp as a character is that it's, he has so much power that if the protagonist is going to have a chance to shine, then Quisp needs to be nerfed in some way, or there needs to be a countering force. Uh, and I honestly, like, I oddly enjoyed the story, the issue where it was Quisp and his brother, and then Quirk, I think was the other one. Uh, yes. The, there were a lot of names. Let's be very clear. I fully agree on that score, but the fact that there were that many elements in play and Quisp wasn't just, oh, let me be powerful and solve the problem, I kind of worked for me. But there are there is a story where he gets to, I think the first story that we t have him in in this selection where he is unopposed and it's just like, bullshit, I don't care. Yeah, I would have I would have had less of a problem with that entire issue had they all not had the same naming convention. And... It's, but the the actual fundamentals of that issue are very solid. It's just you know the cop who's been misled joins up with the team to find the real bad guy. Um, something I want to mention before before I forget actually, um, we go to Atlantis once this year, and in it is just 
Proximus or Promoxus fooling everybody into thinking that he's Aquaman. We don't have Aquaman interacting with Atlantis in any other way other than dealing with Pomoxis. And I found that really strange. Yeah, I'm trying to remember because I think I accidentally overshot by one issue in both uh, Aquaman and in World's Finest. Because there is a point where Proximus comes back and there's actually, I, I think it was actually Aquaman number seven. So one after what we covered where it actually is very Atlantis focused. And they not only do they bring back uh, Proximus, but they also bring back, they specifically have the the guy who's been like the ruler or at least like the head representative of the Atlanteans who winds up uh, talk is usually the guy who is talking with uh, uh, with Aquaman whenever he's down in Atlantis. So there's there's some little bits of uh, of the Gardner Fox reuse of thing of elements. But it's so much less than any of the stuff we were reading from Gardner Fox. Yeah, definitely. One overview note and then one bit of just dumb fun trivia. Um, There are two very different Aquaman experiences that we go through. And it's not just tonally, it's also the length. Because the world's finest comics are... I think it's six pages for the Aquaman stories, whereas the Aquaman comics, it's not just that he has the entire issue. He has the entire issue and they're all a single story. Uh, It's not two separate stories throughout the issue. It's three chapters and they often do the dumb thing of being pretty unrelated or having major like plot swings uh between chapters that each one sort of feels like a different mini adventure but they are definitively all part of the same story uh and i honestly feel like there are some times where aquaman works well in those longer stories or at least this version of aquaman but there's something so fundamentally inoffensive about the short stories for me that I'm happier with them. Yeah. I think that's and, the right word is inoffensive. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's, there's nothing wrong with those. They're just campy. Yep. Oh, 100%. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just very interesting to see camp next to take yourself very seriously mm-hmm. for a superhero comic. The juxtaposition is weird. If they were all the same tonally, it wouldn't stand out. It's the fact that there is definitely a fate of the world topo at a circus. Fate of the world Aquaman does a sting operation. Fate of the world. These monsters are loose. We got to get them back to the zoo. Like, it's weird. It's weird to me that there's... It, it definitely does feel like two different writers. We don't know. They they very well could be, but they the other ones are unknown and uncredited, so it could be. I don't know who's writing the Aquaman issues. I prefer those because, like you said, they are longer. They're three times longer. They have more time to breathe. Um, they can be a little bit more creative because he has more time to set up whatever fish thing that he's doing. But the other ones are okay. They're not incredible, but they're good. I think here's another thing that just occurred to me. Um because we read these comics in different ways, uh, I think the way they're grouped, the way that we read them might actually play into uh, how we experience them because the way I read them is almost always all of the issues for a given uh, episode of one comic and then all the issues of another. So I instead of going from World's Finest to Aquaman to World's Finest to Aquaman, I went World's Finest, Aquaman, and then done. Uh, Mm. And so it was less of a... There was certainly less jarring going back and forth between them. Yeah, and I jumped chronologically as with accordance of the book that I have. So it's one, two, one, two, one, two, not one, 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 two, 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 two. So yeah, I think that could also play into the effect of how you consume the the stories and how tonally it's like oh these are like this and these are like this as opposed to what the hell am i looking at (laughs) the medium is the message 
Yeah. Uh, and then the dumb entertaining one, there's, uh, I think this is the, is it Prox? No, it's, oh, it's Pomoxis. I was saying Pomoxis. Proxis. Yeah. The- it sounds equally Roman. <laughs> no. Uh, so the story where Pomoxis shows up, uh, there's a point where Aquaman is trying to use catfish to do a thing and then Pomoxis six dogfish against them. And it hit a memory for me. Because back in elementary school, when Pokemon had just come out, uh, yeah, yeah, all the way back then, uh, I have vivid memories of playing at recess, uh, at being a Pokemon trainer with classmates. But the part of the Pokemon battles that we latched onto wasn't the fight per se. It was the elemental rock, paper, scissors. So we'd be circled around two kids pretending to be trainers who were just constantly ch- uh, calling out which Pokemon we were switching to. Just fire type, grass type, or I guess in this case it would be Charmander into, uh, okay, you, uh, the other person calls out just immediately, uh, Squirtle, well, Bulbasaur, and it would just go like that, and eventually everything ended up back at Mewtwo at some point. Yeah. And we just, like, we do that for the entire recess of, like, 20 minutes, 15 minutes. We never had the Pokemon fighting. It was just always, well, the way I win is by knowing a Pokemon that beats you. And we're just going to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Catfish and dogfish. Yep. All right. Recommendation time? Yeah. um, I'm going to recommend a YouTube channel. I don't think I've recommended this before. If I have, what are you going to do about it? Um (laughs) Lindsay Ellis um, Mm. does some really interesting video essays on YouTube. And I think last episode I did history buffs and I have been going down the YouTube rabbit hole of video essays uh, while at work. And Lindsay Ellis's work is really interesting. I think because of how well researched she is and despite her obvious personal feelings of stuff, she is very good at being centrist with how she talks about the properties that she's dealing with, be they Disney properties or um, Marvel or anything, whatever, whatever it is that she's talking about. I personally really like all of her musical uh, analyses. The video she has on the Phantom of the Opera film is very interesting. Um, It's holistic in how commentary is there. It's not just writing or acting. It's like, why are the camera angles all Dutch angles for no reason? Why are we cutting when we shouldn't be at this point? You know, it's, she clearly knows a lot about what she's talking about. And I appreciate watching someone who is that knowledgeable dissect stuff in an educational way, as opposed to a, um, like a crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's a lot of sites out there that do a lot of, um, look how terrible this movie is. And she's like, okay. But then there are these moments in Phantom of the Opera that are really great. You know, and then she'll do those or she'll compare. She's like, look, this doesn't make any sense unless you've seen the stage play. So doing this scene doesn't really work because what's happening in the stage play is this. And we're seeing this on screen. This could have been a thing that they didn't have to adapt. And it's it's impressive things. I don't know things I would like to know more about. Her Hunchback of Notre Dame video for the is amazing and a really interesting video. Um, she does a great video on um, the Hercules movie by Disney and how it's just this cluster of everything has to work because it was those two directors trying to get the okay to do Treasure Planet. And they could only do Treasure Planet if they made one more commercially viable success. And so they made Hercules. And it was it's fascinating to kind of hear all this Disney history, um, let alone just analyses of stories and story structure and film structure uh, just to be more knowledgeable about these things i would suggest checking them out she does a very good job she has a, a patreon as well i believe um but yeah i would uh definitely go check out Lindsay ellis's work uh agreed uh there are a number of those video essays that have really stood out to me and uh, watching the uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame one got me to listen to the soundtrack, which then led to us actually watching that because I didn't see it growing up. Mm. It was good. Yeah. Uh, the What I'm going to recommend, I've probably already recommended this, but now I'm finally approaching being caught up on it. Uh, and that is 
Acquisitions Incorporated, the C team, which is the uh, Jerry Holkins from Penny Arcades. Uh, well, in my case, podcast. In most cases, live stream of D and D, and I. I am finally about to be caught up. It is three full, or almost three full seasons. Uh, they're on the last like six or so episodes, I think, of the third season. And it's hit me recently that there really are two phases to it. The first season is haunting in ways. It, it is about a fundamentally alien world that... Uh, surreal is better than alien, I guess is the way to put it. But a world where stuff is just unknown to the players and the characters and they're discovering it and it is fundamentally at ill at ease with how they expect the world to be and how we would expect the world to be. And then season two and three are fundamentally soap opera and it's good soap opera and, or if nothing else, that's what I get out of it. Uh, and for me, that's actually great because I've certainly had a big old D&D soap opera shaped hole in my life since Critical Role doesn't really do as much of that with season two. So it's been sort of my happy place, but I'm about to be caught up on it now. I'm about to be done with that. I have to listen to other podcasts now. <laughs> it's been strange. Like that's been my commute for two or three months now. Nice. But yeah, definitely recommended. Well, this is probably on the shorter side of most of our episodes that we do normally because we're trying to get through this. Otherwise, if we did <clears throat> 1962 to, to 1964, it'd just be an extra long episode. We don't like doing that. So we like to keep them under an hour. Um, so the next episode is going to be more Aquaman. Once we're done with Aquaman, we skip the bees because we're not there with Batman yet in our coverage. Um, but we go back and look at the challenges of the unknown. So that'll be fun and see what those folks are up to. But one more episode of Aquaman coverage, and uh, we'll see you all on the waves. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Sea wizards and sprites aside, we had enjoyed our time with Aqua House, but we weren't done. Catching some time on dry land, we prepared for another dive into the world of DC's ocean-dwelling superhero.